Our scripture lesson this morning is a glimpse into the life of Mary, Jesus' mother. Um, we have heard uh, her Magnificat, her, uh, her cry of, of joy many, many times in which she talks about the day when those who are high will be brought down, those low lifted up. But today we're going to pick up a little earlier the story, a part we call the Annunciation and the moment in which she discovered what all God was going to be doing. I invite you to follow along in the scriptures or just hear and experience the moment of this telling to God, and just as Janie has sung about and all our worship has prepared us for, try to, to hold together in yourself all the conflicting emotions that she must have felt, the terror and the joy and the honor and the fear, just what a cauldron of emotions it must have been. Imagine holding all that together as we hear now from the book of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. This is very exciting. I've never had walk-up music before. This is great. Ian will be so excited because my first story is about him, so we'll just pretend the music is about him. I dropped uh, the kids off at school a couple weeks ago and had dropped the girls off and was now taking Ian to school. And uh, as we were rounding uh, the corner and about to get there, Ian Ian asked, um, so, Dad, if God made everything, who made God? These are the kinds of questions that a pastor father lives for. I am dying for people to ask me questions like this. And so I I gave him the short answer. I came back and, you know, said, well, you know, God has always been. God was not created. God is the uncreated creator. And he was like, well, how do you know? And I said, well, there are a lot of things, but we're almost to school. So let me just tell you, in the Bible it says, I preached on it two weeks ago. Apparently you weren't listening. In the beginning was the word and in the and the word was with god and the word 
was God? Ian said, oh, I haven't read that part of the book yet. I can't read. And I thought that was the funny part of the story. That was the last line that made me chuckle. And so I'm not a big Facebook poster. I, I, frankly, I'm just negligent about it, and I should be better. But I thought that was a funny story. I thought I would share it in case anybody else needed a chuckle for the day. And I put that, that little brief encounter on, uh, on Facebook, and it got a lot more likes and a lot more commentary than my, uh, my video message about the signs of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and a lot of people... Uh, came back with their comments about it. And there was a common theme to a lot of what people had to say about this conversation. They said, oh, your son is so smart. What a deep thinker. And look, I'm his dad. So I will take that all day long. And I think the world of my kids. I think they're very, very smart. I enjoy my conversations with them. Uh, I'm not pretending that I'm objective about this, but some of the comments that were made betrayed a little bit more uh, than they thought because uh, some of these folks were just trying to pay me and my son a compliment. They were just trying to encourage us. But other folks, you could kind of tell by the tone of it, they were betraying something about themselves more than saying anything about me or my child. They were betraying that they have not spent much time in children's ministry. Because children are natural theologians. Children love to ask questions. And they love to keep asking questions and going down deep into those questions. And they love to ask questions. I know it's kind of a cliche, but they love to ask why. And then when you give them the answer, they want to say, well, why that? And and they just keep going. Why, 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 why? They want to get down to the point where you're talking about fundamental questions of epistemology and and, uh, ontology, like these sorts of things you'd learn about in philosophy classes. That's what the kids want to know. Like, why is anything? Those sorts of questions. They ask questions like, who? And then they'll just keep digging down. They love to ask who because they know more than the rest of us that their lives are dependent on someone else, right? A kid knows they're not gonna get everything they want out of life on their own power. So they wanna know who, who will get me what I want, who will keep me from getting what I want, who am I depending on, who needs my trust. And we who think that we are more independent than they are, we tend to elide those who questions. We like to ask questions more like how. We're pretty sure we can do it if somebody will just tell us how. We can take care of things for ourselves. We want to know, how do I get from where I am to where I want to be? How do I accomplish this thing that is a goal in my life as quickly or as cheaply or as impressively as possible? Children, on the other hand, are perfectly willing to ask the kinds of questions that don't change anything at all. They want to know not just about how, but what is, and who is, and why. And maybe this is part of what Jesus meant when he said that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become like little children. And maybe that's what we're trying to recover in this season of childlike wonder that we call Advent, the season of waiting. We want to know who are we waiting for? And why are we waiting? 
We are taking time during this Advent to reawaken our awe and our wonder by remembering that God is not simply the best version of what we already know or want to be. God is not like some role model that we are aspiring to be like, and we're just trying to figure out how. But we are discovering again that God is fundamentally different than we ever imagined, that God's presence should boggle our minds, that God is able to hold together some things that seem like they are impossible to us. We worship a God who is justice and mercy, who is a lion and a lamb, a God who is, as we will discover in a few days, fully human and fully divine. And we've talked about how this God who holds together the things we cannot is a God of paradox and a God of mystery. We were not going to figure God out. We are not going to solve this riddle. We can only marvel at it. Worship in its presence and wonder. We've talked about what it means that God's kingdom is already here and not yet here. We're still waiting. And we've talked about what it means that God is able to do really useful things for us, but also sometimes to take us out of that altogether and just rest in God's presence. We're waiting for a miracle that says that the manger is going to hold a Messiah that the lowest birthplace we could imagine is also the place that holds the king. And maybe the most useful thing we can do is to quit asking how we're gonna solve our problems for ourselves, but to admit that we are in a season of waiting, always waiting on God's ultimate return that's gonna set right all that is broken in this world and also waiting on God to make us who we were meant to be. The best thing we can do in the season of Advent is to remember who we are and to become like those childlike theologians who take seriously the kinds of questions that we don't have time for any other time of the year. Questions like, so where does God live? Is God in heaven or is God in my heart? I mean, maybe you don't spend much time worrying over that or wondering about it either because you have an answer or because you're not exactly sure what difference the answer will make to you. It's a big question, though, because it seems in the scriptures like God must be really big. That's what the, the song is that we sing when we're little kids. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But at the same time, there's a paradox there, a challenge for us, which is, that we don't have the best of relationships with really big things. Big things don't have a, have a reputation for being particularly personal. Big government, big churches, big business. These are not terms that we use when we want to talk about how much something matters to us personally. If God is so big, then it sounds as if we are describing someone very far off and remote. If God is in heaven, what does God have to do with what's going on here? And at the same time, we talk a lot about a, a personal relationship with God, with a God whose dwelling is in our heart. And maybe we are afraid of asking childlike questions, like where is God, because we're afraid of the answer. God is small enough to be within my heart. Maybe God isn't big enough to fix all the things that need fixing. Maybe it's just my own personal feelings at work here. Or if God is so big, then what could I possibly know 
or claim to have of God? Why does it always feel as if God is so far off? We don't want to know the answers to our questions. So we hold them at arm's length. And that is exactly the kind of fear that almost tore the church apart a thousand years ago over the question of where did God live just before Christmas? It all began in a moment about 200 years into Christianity when there was a famous Bible scholar who wrote in his commentary on one of the books of the Bible that Mary was a theotokos, which is to say in the Greek, a God-bearer. He called Mary the mother of God, and as best we can tell, for like 200 more years, lots of other theologians and preachers and writers used that term, and Mary came to be known as the Theotokos until eventually there came along this bishop named Nestorius. You don't have to remember that. There's no quiz later. The bishop came along, and he said in about the 400s, this is blasphemy. (laughs) This is sacrilege to call Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God. What do you mean God has a mother? God is uncreated. God is bigger than all of this. And so whatever happens in Jesus, if you say that Mary is Jesus's mother, you are denying the full divinity of who Jesus is. And this makes God seem too small. And this guy took his church and posed this question, and a lot of people thought maybe he had a point that they wanted to worship a really big God, the sort of God who couldn't be said to belong to any human And they split off from the church, and then that split ended up splitting empires. And for the next thousand years, it would continue to be a debate among Christians. Luther and Calvin, when the Protestant Reformation was starting, they split over many things, but especially this question, whether or not Mary could be called a theotokos. And this question of how big or how small is God, where does God really live? It's been a a dividing point at different times in the life of the church ever since our earliest days. And maybe that sounds ridiculous to you. Maybe it doesn't really seem like a big deal to you. Why do we need to know what to call Mary? Why do we need to know who she is? Our typical way of avoiding such questions is just to ask how. How can we be like Mary? How can we do what she did? How can we have her kind of spirit? We'd rather talk about the how than the what or the why or the who. We'd rather look for role models than discoveries. And we'd rather talk about how we could be more like Mary as if that would be more practical. But of course, when Gabriel came to Mary, Gabriel did not bring her a how. Gabriel did not come to Mary and say, all right, take these three steps or this is what God wants you to do. Instead, the messenger of God came and began talking to Mary by saying, greetings, you who are highly favored. Maybe you know it in the, uh, the translation that's often used in Catholic prayers. Hail Mary, full of grace. I love how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message paraphrase. He says, good morning. You are beautiful with God's own beauty, beauty, beautiful inside and out. Because that's what it means to be full of grace. Grace is what God's own glory becomes when God shares it with us. Grace is God's power, freely given and shared with us. And grace does not mean that Mary moved gracefully like a dancer. 
Grace means that she was the one who carried God's favor. You are favored, you are blessed, you are a vessel of God in the world. Gabriel says that the story begins with Mary knowing who she is. And we can say that Mary is a theotokos, that she is the mother of God because It is scriptural. Just a few verses later, Mary will go to visit her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth will say to her, who am I that the mother of my Lord would come to visit me? But we can also say that we know who Mary is and that she is the mother of God because we know it doesn't make God small to say that God lived within her womb. We believe that God is made more glorious and God is magnified and we believe that God's glory is increased when God chooses to share that glory with even the smallest and the meanest among us and even the most lowly among us. God wants to be known by us. God wants us to know who God is. And every time we do that doesn't make God smaller. It doesn't put God into a box that we can comprehend. Every time we come to know a little bit more of who God is, it only makes God's glory greater because we can't help but tell about it. So we need to know who we are. We are highly favored. We are made in God's image and we may never fully comprehend God, but Mary knew God as intimately as a mother knows her own child. And so there is hope that you can know God too. And that we can know God together. And so we can dare to pray the most outrageous and the most ambitious and the most wonderful questions just because we want to know God better. There's a great writer and theologian, preacher by the name of St. Augustine, who described in his biography, The Confessions, uh, he began it with this one long prayer, and he begins that prayer by asking question after question to God. He says, what then are you, O my God? You are always working and never at rest. You are gathering, but you need nothing. You change your ways, but not your plans. You recover what you find, having yet never lost it. Isn't that a marvelous image? Have you ever known what it's like to be found and also to know that you were never lost? Augustine goes on, you pay debts while owing nothing. And when you forgive debts, you lose nothing. We cannot say anything new about you. And yet woe to those who keep silence. You fill the heaven and earth, but do they contain you? You are most hidden and yet most revealed. You are everywhere. Entire. I love that phrase. Everywhere entire. It means that everywhere we go, we aren't just seeing a little bit of God over here and a little bit of God over there. It's not as if God leaves one part of God's presence here in this worship space and another one out in nature somewhere. That's not how any of this works. To say that God is everywhere entire is to say that Mary's womb held the entire world. And she knew God as deeply as she knew her own self and her own body. And we can know God too. I once met a pastor who said that the embarrassing truth is that Christians and churches and ministers spend more time looking for ideas than they spend looking for God. 
We want ideas about what to plan next, what to do next. We want ideas and plans for how to do what we already do, but better. And what we need is God. We long for more of God, not more ideas about God, but more of God's own presence. And isn't that what we're waiting for in Advent? Isn't that what you're longing for, whether you've been able to admit it or not? More than advice, more than ideas, aren't we simply longing for God? Behind all the the hopes that we have for traditions that we remember or new ones we're inventing this year, isn't what we really long for God? God's presence, to know God, The shepherds and the wise men, they did not come to Jesus to ask him for advice. Best we can tell, he was quite incapable of giving it when they met him. But it was enough for them simply to come and worship him and to know him and to be in his presence. They came to give him their wonder. And the whole time that they were there, Mary was there wondering. She wondered what kind of greeting Gabriel was saying to her when he said, you are most highly favored. She wondered over all that she had seen and heard. And every moment that God showed her who God is, she held on to it. She didn't want to lose a bit of it. And even now, even in this time when we have lost some of the things, maybe some of the places in which we used to find God, we have not lost anything of God. We've not lost any bit of God's presence with us. If you're watching from home, God is entirely with you right now. Not a piece of God, not just enough to get by, but God's entire presence is there with you. And for us gathered here, I hope you have felt the presence of the Lord, and I hope you know that you did not enter God's presence when you walked in that door, and you will not leave it when you step out. Go into the sunshine afterwards. You are a God-bearer, carrying God's presence everywhere that you go. And to say that God is everywhere entire is to say that God is not holding out on you. God doesn't play games with us that we play with other people. You know how we we can kind of code switch. You know what that is? It's when you act one way at the church and then another in different places. Another with coworkers, another with some other set of friends. That's not what God does. God never brings less than God's entire heart to the conversation. God is not holding out on you. And that's what makes children such great natural theologians, isn't it? Because it's never occurred to them that they should hold out. Some people talk about the faith of a child as if it is simple simple and trusting and blind in its obedience and faith. I've never met that kid. Instead, all the kids I know are full of questions. Their faith is always probing and asking, maybe even doubting, but doubting in the sense that there will be an answer. They're able to ask questions about who and why and when are we going to get there? And they keep pressing. And if children have a simple faith, it is not because they do not question. 
It is because they ask every question as if it has an answer. They ask as if they are on the verge of knowing that answer. And they ask and they keep asking without holding anything back. And when I think about how entirely Mary welcomed God, and I think about how wholeheartedly she said those famous words that you probably thought were a Beatles song, let it be with me as you have said. My mind boggles and have as many questions about all this as a backseat kid who is waiting to get to wherever it is we are going. I wonder all kinds of things. Like, I wonder what keeps us from bringing our whole heart everywhere we go. Why do some relationships get one piece of us and others get an entirely different side? And I wonder when it is that you first began to kind of separate your soul from your role and thought you couldn't bring your whole self into this place or that relationship. And I wonder when you decided that what you do is more valuable than who you are. And I wonder what it would look like for you to live wholeheartedly. And what would it mean for you to bear the image of God that is within you everywhere that you go? And I expect that the answer cannot be found in any how-to books. I expect that we can't know who we are unless we are willing to know who God is. Unless we are willing to let it be so that others will discover who they are. And may they hear from our lips, you are highly favored. And may they come to believe that God is with them entirely, everywhere they go, because they saw it lived out in us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.